Last week on The Business of Bees. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. We dive into the booming business of pollination services. It's inextricable from industrial ag, which the United States excels in. Not just excels, it defines industrial ag. We don't have migrant labor much anymore, but we do have migrant bees. But it isn't just honeybees who are good at pollinating crops. You know, there's a lot of bee guys that were kind of skeptical. They're like, hey, are you trying to replace our honeybees? But you know, it's hard to drop five million blue orchard bees into an orchard when you need it. Therein lies, you know, one of the major benefits of honeybees. The farmer worries every day, right? I get up in the morning worrying. I go to bed worrying. That's what we do. You're listening to The Business of Bees, a podcast from Bloomberg Environment. I'm Adam Allington. And I'm David Schultz. By now, I think many people are generally aware of the struggles of honeybees over the last decade or so, how they're dying in large numbers from diseases or pesticides. And it's for that very reason that they've become a kind of cause celebre for environmentalists. Many groups are going as far as to promote backyard beekeeping and local honey as a form of conservation activism. And that's all fine and good. But here's the thing. Apis mellifera, the European honeybee, they're not natural at all. It's like saying I'm concerned about the birds disappearing, so I've decided to keep chickens. That's Dave Goulson. I'm professor of biology at the University of Sussex, and I specialize in studying bumblebees. Compared to wild bees, Goulson says honeybees are basically livestock. They're kept in man-made structures where they're given extra food and medicine, and then they're deployed by the millions to perform a specific agricultural function, which he says makes them a poor symbol for the environmental problems faced by native bees. It's really a a domestic animal. And so I I get really frustrated when um, people talk about the bee and they're usually talking about honeybees or maybe they're just talking about bees and they don't realize there's more than one species. But uh, there's a huge amount of kind of public misunderstanding of issues surrounding bees. Okay, but lest we pin this misunderstanding on a bunch of tree-hugging activists, we should also point out that corporations have also played a big role in making honeybees the poster child of pollinator conservation. In an effort to raise awareness about the dwindling bee population, Cheerios has pulled the famous mascot from the box. A few years back, General Mills Canada removed Buzz from its boxes of Honey Nut Cheerios. I'm sorry, Buzz? You know, he's like a cartoon honeybee. Come on, man. Weren't you ever a kid? We were more of a uh, Lucky Charms household. But if we're talking about bringing back the bees, honeybees aren't even native to North America. That's right. They were brought over by the first European settlers along with cows, chickens, and all our other domesticated farm animals. And compared to the drastic declines we're seeing among certain native bees, there's a good chance we're trying to save the wrong bees. You know, honeybees are not at risk of extinction. They are critically important for agriculture, but these are bees that are not going to disappear. That's Mace Vaughn. We heard from him in episode three. He's a pollinator conservation specialist with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Now, Mace says just because commercial honeybees are being propped up by humans doesn't mean we should ignore their problems. That doesn't devalue them. You know, just because they're livestock doesn't mean that they're not really important. 
In fact, he says we probably wouldn't even be talking about native bees as much today if it weren't for honeybees, and specifically the media attention that came in the wake of the colony collapse scare back in 2006. This might be one of the most interesting, disturbing, and puzzling stories to come along in a long time. Something is happening to the honeybees in this country. That was an important moment for pollinator conservation overall. So in that sense, I do think the honeybee is an important messenger. And we should also say that despite some obvious differences, there are conservation programs that benefit both honeybees and their wild cousins. Indeed, things like planting wildflowers in public lands or creating pollinator hedgerows around fields. But certainly that has some benefits for native bees. In fact, in many cases, considerable benefits. Still, when it comes to the bigger threats to bee health, such as exposure to pesticides, Mace acknowledges that most guidance is still designed with honeybees in mind. Oftentimes, if we look at pesticides, for example, uh, much of the advice is to remove bees from an area after you're, you're done using them for pollination service or cover them up or close them up. And that is not something we are able to do with important wild native bees that are living in and around our farms. All right, so I get it that by focusing too much on honeybees, we risk ignoring certain problems faced by wild bees. But let's face it, without honeybees, wouldn't our entire agricultural economy collapse? So we have, what, a moral imperative to protect honeybees first? I mean, I don't know about that, but I mean, honestly, the cold hard truth of it is that of the 4,000 species of bees living in North America, we need honeybees the most, right? Well, it's not really that simple. Still, the majority of pollination is, generally speaking, for most crops and for most flowers, is delivered by other insects. Dave Goulson says native bees, like bumblebees, are still necessary to pollinate crops, to say nothing of the pollination that comes from other species like butterflies, moths, even bats. I mean, for many crops, pollination isn't primarily done by honeybees. So, you know, every time you eat a bar of chocolate, well, that was pollinated by a fly, not, not a bee. All right, Adam, forget everything I just said. Uh, Please divert all resources to the protection of chocolate flies immediately. (laughs) Well, I think your original point remains true. The honeybee is, by almost any account, the most important single pollinator. And I guess if the honeybee's strength lies in its ability to pollinate a wide variety of crops, many native species are more efficient pollinators for certain plants. We tend to think of them as this one kind of thing, but they're a diverse group of animals. That's Paige Embry. She's a freelance writer and author of the book, Our Native Bees. The focus on the honeybees without sort of equal time given to all of the native bees that are out there, at least equal time. That one always sort of rubs me the wrong way. Among the thousands of bees native to North America, Paige says many people wouldn't even recognize many of them as bees. Some look like small flies. Some of them are green or blue or iridescent. And many, says Paige, have adaptations that make them better pollinators than honeybees. For instance, the blue orchard bee will fly in the kind of cold, wet weather honeybees don't like. And so that can be really limiting for some of that early fruit because, you know, it's spring. Sometimes the weather is not so great. But unlike honeybees, which can be easily picked up and moved to new fields and meadows, Paige says wild bees have to live in the same habitat year-round, which makes them particularly vulnerable to changes in the landscape. The big piece that gets missed is that, you know, our native bees live, 70% of them live in the ground. So what's missing with that is providing nest spots that are close to whatever the floral resources are. 
And even if we're just talking in terms of pure cuteness and charisma, Paige says there's plenty of candidates besides Apis mellifera to speak for the bees. If you're looking for a poster child for U.S. bees, probably, you know, the big, fat, fuzzy bumblebee would be a nice alternative. It's charismatic. It's big enough for people to see. There's all the teeny-weeny little black bees out there, and I don't know that people are going to get behind the teeny little black bees, however important they might be. Strangely enough, one area where the message about native pollinators is translating into actual policies is cities and towns. To get a sense of what that might look like in practice, I called up Catherine Balduck. So we're recording now. Yeah, there we're going. So hi, I'm from the School of Biological Sciences in the University of Bristol in the UK. Catherine's a biologist studying plant-pollinator interactions. And according to a recent study she co-authored, cities and towns actually have a lot of habitat that could be adapted for native bees. If they could act as kind of a refuge for pollinators in the surrounding agricultural landscape, that could be one of the positives of conserving pollinators in our towns and cities. Uh, Hold on. Where are all these urban bees going to live? I'll tell you what, they're not living in my house, that's for sure. Are we putting them (laughs) in public parks or, you know, where, where are they going? Well, yeah, there's that. There's parks, but there's also lots of other places. Residential gardens, gardens that people have around their houses. I guess yards. Are they kind of called yards in the U.S.? Backyards? If I use that term, does that make more sense? Catherine says that with just a few small changes, such as planting more flowers or cutting back on the number of mowings in those grassy, weedy areas along sidewalks and medians, native bee populations actually grew faster in cities than in rural areas. And she says just getting to the point where people grasp the importance of having a landscape that's free of pesticides and suitable for bees, well, that's a really big deal. And for that, she credits honeybees. They're kind of like the panda, aren't they, of um, invertebrate conservation. I think it is a good thing by conserving uh, or by trying to help bees. We're generally improving habitats, putting more flowers in, and that's going to benefit a whole host of other kind of species. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing. They're, They're kind of like a bit of a symbol of conservation in a way, aren't they? But there are also people who say linking honeybees with conservation is more than just ineffective, it actually harms wild bees. The fact that they consume considerable resources that other bees could use, they do displace them, whether just short term or long term, and the fact that they actually move into the landscapes. This is Jonas Geldman. I'm a research fellow at the University of Cambridge. Last year, he published a commentary in the journal Science, where he claimed that this mischaracterization of honeybee die-offs as an environmental problem rather than an agricultural problem has led to people putting bees in places where they don't really belong, places like conservation areas or national parks, places where they compete with native bees for forage. If you took the same kind of of mechanisms and the same kind of of evidence and you applied it to a normal conservation question of saying, is there a a likelihood that this species is actually threatening another species? This invasive um, toad is affecting a a population of frogs. This would definitely be where in, in most, if not all other conservation issues, you'd say, all right, we're definitely at the level now where precautionary principle is in its place. Geldman says there's this lingering idea that what benefits honeybees will ultimately benefit native bees as well. And for the most part, 
that's not really the case. I'm not a financial expert, but I think there's definitely some truth to the fact of trickle-down economics. It's this discussion of just because there is a, a positive side to it, would there be other steps we could take that would have a much larger and much better sort of return on investment? So in this trickle-down economics metaphor, which bees are the uh, the billionaires and which are the middle class here? <laughs> so the honeybees are definitely the billionaires. Like, I think it's a question of the fact that if we are interested in conserving wild threatened pollinators, uh, if we take a strategy that is focused on an agricultural animal that is being kept in human made hives that are being treated for diseases in the winter, that is being given supplement feeding when needed, is a strategy that protects them. Is that likely to be the best strategy for protecting the wild and native bees? And, and I think that's highly unlikely. So just to underscore a critical point yet again, all of the people we spoke to in our reporting, including Jonas, say that mass honeybee die-offs and the struggles of beekeepers are a problem. That's right. It's just that it's not a conservation problem. But one area of common ground between the bees are the threats posed by invasive species. There's a larva. See that guy? You can have like 10 to 15 of these in one of these little cherries. That's Nikki Rothwell. She's a pest management specialist at the Michigan State Horticulture Research Center in Traverse City, Michigan. Over the past seven years, she's been in a race with a tiny fly called spotted wing Drosophila. I mean, in the lab, we can have a generation every five days. So you can just really go from zero to, you know, millions really quickly. And then it becomes a numbers game. Growers can't control a million flies, but they could control maybe a thousand. Just looking at it, spotted wing drosophila doesn't really look that threatening. It's a small bug about the size of a fruit fly. But it also has this annoying habit of reproducing by laying its eggs in soft fruits like cherries, raspberries, and blueberries. And even if SWD doesn't harm bees directly, Nikki says the fact that it's there at all still poses a threat to bees. So we're trying to figure out when to start spray programs and then trying to minimize the number of sprays that were out there. So my concern over time, if we have to spray more and more and more, what are the implications on, I mean, not even just native pollinators, but just, you know, the system itself. The recommended pesticides used on spotted wing drosophila include a class of chemicals called pyrethroids, which the label warns are highly toxic to bees. And of course, use of pesticides has been linked to the long-term declines in wild bee populations. That's why it was such a big deal in 2017 when the rusty-patched bumblebee became the first bee to be listed on the endangered species list, which many took as a sign that the messaging around bees was no longer specifically tied to just honeybees. This is not, you know, a large mammal. This is a very small insect that most people that spoke up for it have never seen. So it seems to me that there is a shift in um, the public concern for species like the rusty patch bumblebee. This is Clay Bolt. He's a natural history photographer who co-produced a short film about the rusty patch bumblebee in 2016 called Ghost in the Making. According to the Fish and Wildlife Service, the rusty patch bumblebee is currently present in just one-tenth of one percent of its historical range. But Bolt says having this native bee added to the endangered species list is a huge step in the right direction. It means that all of those species should benefit from any protections that are put in place for the rusty patched, um, which, you know, it might not even be um, species of bumblebee as well. There are other species of butterfly and different things that will benefit from this protection. So I see it almost as a small umbrella species for pollinators and other invertebrates 
You know, this is not a species that's just found in a wildlife refuge in some remote place. This is found in people's backyards in places like Madison, Wisconsin, or in Minnesota. And so that does change the rules a little bit. According to the Xerces Society, today one out of every four species of bumblebees on the continent is under threat of extinction. And just to bring this discussion full circle, whether you feel honeybees are or aren't the best symbol for the threats faced by pollinators today, as Mace Vaughn puts it, the fact that we're even having this discussion means progress is being made. I feel like instead of less attention through time, I feel like there is just more and more attention because this is something that, A, everybody seems to inherently understand. And frankly, let's thank the honeybees for that. Right. And unlike some environmental issues that are kind of abstract, he says bees are something you can engage with right in your own backyard. This isn't like, you know, climate change and polar bears in the Arctic. Everybody from a farmer to a public land manager to that backyard gardener to that person who just has a front yard with some clovers in it can be doing something to provide habitat. All right, Adam, what do we have coming up on the show next week? Next week, we're going to take a close look at parasites and bees and specifically a creature that sounds like it comes from a sci-fi film called Varroa Destructor. They use their mouth parts to suck a blood-like fluid from the bee larvae and then lay their eggs in the brood cell. That sounds terrifying or disgusting, maybe. Is that the right word? (laughs) Well, come on. You know, parasites got to make a living, too. And as it turns out, surprise, surprise, we humans are playing a big role in Varroa's success. Uh, Of course, I should have guessed. This episode of Business of Bees was produced by myself and David Schultz. We had fact-checking help from Patricio Chile. Our editors were Greg Henderson, Melissa Robinson, Jessica Coombs, and Marissa Horn, who just the other day I saw giving a tour of our newsroom. We tend to think of them as this one kind of thing, but they're a diverse group of animals. Music for this episode is through a Creative Commons license from Pottington Bear and Eddie. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Hey there, it's Adam Allington. Just one more quick note for you. If you're interested in environmental issues, you might want to check out another podcast from Bloomberg Environment called Parts Per Billion. It's hosted by Business of Bees co-host David Schultz. Here's David to tell you all about it. You probably have a lot of questions about the environment. Well, so do we. Are we talking like radioactive chemicals? Is this becoming sort of irrelevant if the U.S. doesn't participate in this? What's going on here? How far did the Trump administration go? And is mining really better down where it's wetter? Climate change, chemicals, water pollution, you name it. If it's in the environment, we're talking about it. Listen to Bloomberg Environment's official podcast, Parts Per Billion, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, get up-to-the-minute reporting at our website, news.bloombergenvironment.com.